Voice of America, Washington, D.C., signing on. Here in the Gorilla Camp, located deep in the heart of rural northern North Carolina. And it's really good to be back with you, of course. I am the best-selling author of The Gorilla's Guide to the Baofeng Radio and The Gorilla Dispatch, Volumes 1 and 2. And uh, yesterday's episode, yesterday's episode, Bad Moon on the Rise, uh... Man, oh man, I think that might be the most downloads that Radio Contra has ever got in such a short amount of time. I think I checked on it at uh, the eight-hour mark or so, and 2,000 downloads, uh, closing in on 2,000 downloads. Wow. Uh, Wow. You know, and this, this audience is really something. Uh, you guys are really something. And, um, you know, I think that, that you value my input on things a, a lot. Uh, thankfully, thankfully. And, uh, you know, but it's just one man's opinion. There's a lot of things that have happened, uh, since the recording of that episode. And now of course we had an insurrection in the Capitol that was led in part by Rashida Tlaib. A representative from Michigan, Dearbornistan, to be specific. And, um, you know, it, it. here's the thing. They go into the Capitol. It did get out of hand. You know, we have the left that has got away with literal murder in D.C., right? They've got away with literal murder. You know, when you look at this, when you when you look at this, these pro-Palestinian uh, protests, which this is the American left, all right. Let, let's just let's just call it what it is. It, it you know, as I covered yesterday, communist revolutionaries, the militant left has a long and deeply entrenched history with the Palestinian movement, you know, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. I was very much a, a metaphor for uh, the communist bloc, the uh, Iron Curtain, the Warsaw Pact versus NATO, which was embodied in Israel. And, and that's the way that it has been for a very long time. And again, as I emphasized yesterday, it doesn't matter how you in particular feel about it. It's how they are framing it. 
and it's how they have framed this narrative historically over decade upon decade upon decade, really going back to 1947. Um, you know, the, the Palestinians found a natural ally in the Soviet Union. And, of course, the Israelis, the primary benefactor for them was the United States and NATO by proxy. And so, uh, you know, then you get into the history of the Ba'athist Party, the Pan-Arab Socialist Movement, which was uh, Soviet-backed. It was a, a Soviet ploy to upend OPEC. And, of course, this is the longer-term geopolitical game. And this is going on again. Uh, th this is happening now. This is what BRICS is all about. They learned their lesson, the mistakes that were made uh, in the 1970s going into the 1980s. And, and the, the Ba'athist movement really um, hurt the United States, particularly in the 1970s, going into the oil crisis. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, the baby boom generation will remember the oil lines or the uh, gas lines, rather, the gas station, you know, the, the, uh, really torpedoed Jimmy Carter's presidency. I mean, there, there were a lot of things. Jimmy Carter was, was a very incompetent president, but that was kind of the capstone of it all. That is the thing that everybody remembers. Um, you know, and, and looking at Joe Biden today, it's, you know, Jimmy Carter looked pretty good compared to, to Biden and, and his foreign policy. And it, it's, you know, the, the only reason that we don't have those lines at the pump and the only reason that we're, we're you know, kind of still at least enjoying the standard of life that we have in the United States is because our economy is still very strong. You know, and, and, and a lot of the doomsayers are, are going to point out and, you know, realities. And, and, yeah, we are headed towards some incredibly hard times. But it's still, at least at the surface level, there's still food on the shelves. There's still, you know, gas at the pump. Um, it is getting expensive. Inflation is, is certainly on the rise, but it has not hit its peak yet. And um, that is because the, the infrastructure that we have had in place is is there and remains in place as a result of the the Reagan administration taking great pains to make sure that that wasn't going to happen again uh, as long as the United States maintained its hegemony in the world and so that's kind of the deeper more uh, large scale look at all of this and. That's why it's it's not a surprise to see what we saw yesterday in the Capitol. Now, nobody got shot in the neck. Uh, nobody got beat to death. Nobody uh, had agents provocateur inviting them into the Capitol. They just went in. Um, there were a lot of reports that were coming out of this yesterday. Now, this, this was very important. They picked a, a perfect time to do this. If I was a shithead and I wanted to raise hell, uh, they picked a very good time to do this because this is when uh, the votes for the Speaker of the House is ongoing. And so they're occupying the Capitol building while something critically important to our national politics is occurring. So, you know, are we going to see hearings are we going to see the, uh, the the calls for it's worse than 
This insurrection was worse than 9-11. Are we going to see that? Are we going to see the billboards of the FBI? If you know anything about this October 18th in D.C. thing happening, you you better let us know. Are we going to see any of that? Of course not. Of course not. Of course we are not going to see that. Funny you. Silly, thinking that there's going to be a unified system of justice. And of course, you know, some of the, the Freedom Caucus Republicans out there, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, you know, so on and so forth, are calling for uh, records, the, the footage of it to be released already. Um, you know, there's some movement behind the scenes, but it's not going to go anywhere. Okay, it's not going to go anywhere. We don't even have unified support behind Jim Jordan for Speaker of the House, and we're not going to get it. We're not going to get it. There's there's going to be that that rhino Republican uh, faction that is holding out. They're not going to budge because they don't represent you. They don't represent me. They represent their interests, their interests, which are not your interests, and they're not my interests, right? They represent the interests of the Uniparty of D.C. Incorporated, now, I find this a very interesting juxtaposition because as I've long held, there are two factions on the left. There is the left version of DC Incorporated, of, of the uh, Uniparty. This would be spearheaded by the types like uh, Chuck Schumer, for example, Nancy Pelosi. They allow certain things to happen, but what they don't realize what they do not realize, and, and I've maintained this throughout the years because I've seen this at the street level, they do not realize that there is a communist insurgency that is rapidly gaining ground that hates them with a passion. They hate them with a passion. If you think that you despise the Republican establishment as much as I do and want to see them gone, you have no idea what it looks like on the militant left. They are absolutely ruthless in how they are looking at government in general. And so for every free pass the FBI gives them, because it is politically convenient to do so, well, we can't be out there arresting uh, potential Democrat voters. We can't do that. Well, you know those Republican voters, you can go after them. You can go after the, the MAGA crowd. You can go after them. You can besmirch them online. You can throw them in solitary confinement. You can uh, deny them all of their rights. And look at what's happened. Nothing. Nothing. Angry words, of course. There's not enough lawyers that will take up their cause. They don't have enough clout. They don't have enough friends in the judiciary. They don't have enough uh, friends in the law schools and the elite law schools across the United States. Look at Stuart Rhodes, for example. He's a Yale law grad. Yale. Number two law school in the United States. Behind Harvard. Look what happened to him. Look how he was railroaded. He stepped out of line. That's the way it happens. You are born into privilege and you have and maintain that privilege until such a time to whence the machine decides to take it away. 
if you violate the unspoken rules. That's the way that this happens. I think that they'll come for Alan Dershowitz, too. Uh, but that's a whole other conversation. I think that they're going to come come for him. He's pointed out some uncomfortable realities. Harvard is, uh, th- there are some things that's going on with all, there's some moving pieces that, that I see. That Again, that, that's another conversation there. But that's why these things like Occupy stuff, like burning down city blocks, why... These tactics work on the left, but they do not work on the right. And they're not going to work on the right. And this is something that I've pointed out over and over and over again. And, of course, you're probably throwing your hands up. I know there's a lot of you that are going to say in frustration, well, what should we do? What should we do? What is to be done? What is to be done is mobilizing a base in your local area. And when you see these types of people that are coming in, you push them out. You throw them out. You ruthlessly pursue them using the infrastructure that you have created from a grassroots base. That's how you do it. When people move into your area and they've come from places where you know that they're not welcome and you look at the bumper stickers on their cars, you tell them, no, I'm not going to sell this property to you. I'm not going to do business with you. We reserve the right to deny you service. Oh, you want to rent this space for your uh, coffee shop or your bookstore or your bicycle shop? That's real common on the left. Yeah, okay, well, the rent's going to be seventy grand a month. Yeah, we'll do business with you. It's going to be seventy grand a month. That's how you do it. You push those people out. Now, you're probably thinking, well, what does it have to do with D.C.? Because nothing is going to be done in D.C. They're allowed to get away with this. The infrastructure favors them because they are not a threat. At least the Democrats don't perceive them as a threat to the establishment, even though they very much are. And this is a communist revolution that is happening. It's happening at the street level. This is why nothing will happen to Rashida Tlaib. And if they expelled her from Congress, that would only bolster her that much more. You have to understand this. The best thing that they could do with her, by the way, and she threatened Joe Biden yesterday. It's all on record, right? Put the video up on AmericanPartisan.org. It's there. But the best thing that they could do with her is not expel her from Congress, but leave her in place. And she now enjoys no seats on any committees. Because what's going to happen with her, if they were to throw her out, is they will end up replacing her with someone even worse. Better the devil you know. And you have to understand that Dearbornistan is not a place where magically conservatives are just going to win. Uh, that, that's not going to happen. And this is something that I've pointed out over the years, too. When uh, going back to the 2022 election, when a lot of the conservative pundits were running around out there saying, look, see, all these Democrats are retiring. And that means we're just going to clean sweep everything. Yeah, well, when you look at the districts and when you look at the breakdown of the districts, that's not really the reality because just because one sock puppet is leaving, do you think you not think that you're going to get the same again? 
uh, the same people. They, they, they're, they're not going to magically wake up and become flag-waving Republicans all of a sudden. That, that's not going to happen. Uh, as much as we would like for it and we wish for it to not be so, this is the reality. Okay, so this isn't meant to blackpill anybody, but it is meant to point out that this is the reality. Okay, let's let's pull our heads out of the sand. Let's quit saying there's going to be magic 50,000 arrests and all those protesters, they're all going to get arrested. And then magically, the Capitol Police is just going to become patriotic all of a sudden. And just, you know, fairness and equity within the law. Now, no, I, I don't know what planet you, you're on, but man, that, that's some strong hopium uh, that you are smoking. It ain't going to happen, boys and girls. It ain't going to happen. So, you know, I, I'm telling you, abandon that notion. DC is 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 ridiculously out of control, and it's it's not going to get any better. Okay, it's, it's not going to get any better from here. Uh, Biden, of course, is giving $100 million to Gaza. Um, this is on top of the money that he gave Gaza right before all of these attacks. And, of course, this, this is a uh, political ploy that he is just kind of, it, it's a gimme to the electoral base. This is what he's being told by Democrat Incorporated to do. And of course they, they already have their grift baked into there. And they, there's all these little NGOs that are going to be popping in there. And this, this is, um, this is all part and parcel of it. But the funny thing about this is, is that this comes immediately after he departed Israel and he met with Netanyahu, and, and I don't know if, if any of you watched the body language coming out of that, but wow. Uh, first of all, Biden mumbled his way through everything. He was completely incoherent, uh, you know, calling Hamas the other team. Uh, okay, uh, I guess that's one take on it. Um, but, you know, body language is everything. Netanyahu couldn't really be bothered with being there. This was just formal keeping up appearances. You have to understand that Democrats were trying very, very hard to get rid of Netanyahu, and they, they've been doing this for quite some time now. Of course, Netanyahu's got an iron grip on the politics of Israel, and he is very, very not popular. Uh, very not popular uh, in in Israel for a lot of reasons. Uh, but that being said, uh, the Likud party, which is his political party, maintains a majority and he has an iron grip on that. And, and of course, there's some elements of the Mossad going into that as well. But, uh, you know, very much as it is here, there's a deep state apparatus, there's a right-wing deep state apparatus, there's a left-wing uh, deep state apparatus. And I would say the, the left-wing deep state apparatus, at least from, from what I know of Israeli politics, looks like it's deeply entwined with the American intelligence community, uh, just as it is here in the United States. You know, so, and, and speaking of that, speaking of that, there's one other thing that I want to point out. And this was something that Michael Savage uh, pointed out in a tweet uh, early this morning. I saw it, and um, he, he's exactly right, as he normally is. If you look at the people that were the protesters inside the Capitol yesterday, 
pay very close attention to the signs that they had. Okay, these aren't your normal PLO types. These are primarily Jewish folks who are left-wing, very secular Jews in America who make up a lot of the left-wing activism in the United States. You will find these people behind the trans movements. You will find these people behind the Occupy movements. You will find these people deeply embedded in the halls of academia. They are all the same. Okay, It's rinse and repeat whatever they want to uh, protest about this particular day, uh, this, this particular occasion. They will take up a cause. But you got to understand that this is just like in Suvrov, uh, Victor Suvrov's Spetsnaz, they looked at these people as watermelons. Uh, when he was specifically talking about communist activists in the West, they called them watermelons. They were green on the outside, red on the end. Right? And that is, that is what they are. Okay, they look at Israel as an annoyance. They look at Israel, the nation of Israel, as a bunch of religious zealots that they only use and scapegoat out of convenience. All right, whenever somebody calls them out on their bullshit, they say, oh, you know, oh, oh, never again. And, and, and they want to hide behind that stuff. They want to hide behind their identity. But they, they have absolutely no use for Israel. And a lot of these left-wingers, who maintain a dual citizenship will go back to Israel and they cause problems there as well. And that's, that's why. Uh, and, and it's, uh, there was a press conference that I watched yesterday afternoon while I was working on some stuff of, um, the, the rescue workers that went into the kibbutzes and, uh, that was absolutely heartbreaking. That was heartbreaking, and, and that was reliving uh, some particular uh, traumatic things in, in my life as well. But while I was watching that, uh, that was a, the, the man who was in charge. I, I forget his name, speaking a little off the cuff. But the man who was in charge of the relief effort, who was giving a firsthand account uh, of, of what he saw there, that man was completely traumatized. And... Uh, you know, if once you recognize it, you, you recognize it. Uh, and it, it's extremely sad. Uh, that, that's absolutely heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for both sides. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm heartbroken for everybody that's caught in the middle of, of a war. But you have to understand that, that when you go after civilian targets, which is what kicked this off, okay, when you purposely target civilians, as Hamas did, you know, I'm sorry. They, you, you know, you, you deserve every ounce of that wrath. But anyway, the, getting back to my point here, the kibbutzes that, that were attacked, a lot of these, a lot of these are inhabited by very secular uh, folks who, who have come from the United States, right? That, that you know, they, they're very, uh, very left wing, we shall say. And it's, it's unfortunate, right? And, and so to them, and, and I think that that's why a lot of them were caught off guard. If you go back and, and look at the video footage of the paragliders coming uh, across the Gaza border, 
uh, into southern Israel, and, and you look at that footage from the rave in particular, they were dancing to a shrine of Buddha, and uh, you know a lot of these folks go out there just to party in the desert. You know, it, it, it's um, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of reality to that. Uh, and if if you know anything about those communities, and then, then you know you you know what I'm talking about. And uh, they stuck in this complacency, you know, peace and love, and this isn't going to happen, and. You know, well, those, those people are, are really not evil and we're all equal and they would never do that. And, uh, well, you see what that gets you. You see what that gets you. Left wing, the peace and love hippie stuff, right? And I'm all about being nonviolent, if at all possible, you know, de-escalation, having a good time. You know, in, enjoying the experience of, of your fellow, uh, that, that fellowship with, with your fellow people out there, right? I, I'm, I'm all about that stuff. But you have to realize that simultaneously, there are people who want what you have. And they're going to take it from you by force, including your life. That they don't see you as human, right? They, they don't share those Western values and that Western indoctrination, and so it's very easy to lose sight of it. it. You know, my initial reaction to all that was, this is people that, that forgot what it was like. And so the American left, the American left, the, the uh, internationalists, this, this is the reality of it, right? This is the reality of it. And we saw it on display in, in the United States Capitol building yesterday. We saw that. We're seeing it across cities in the United States. We're seeing it in Germany, riots in Germany, and riots that will be extending across Europe as a result of this. And the people who enable it and who allow for it to continue carrying on. And that's just the, the, the long and short of it. But understand, though, that, that revisiting this, is a, I'm kind of uh, buttoning up the topic here, that this conflict is going to get wider. We're already seeing it. We're seeing the the spreading of it, the, the symbolic um, interpretation of the, the bombing of the Baptist Hospital, regardless of who is responsible. Okay, it, it matters not at this point, but it is that we are a group target. Every Westerner now is a group target. And you will be viewed as such, regardless of how you feel about it, regardless of how you feel about this conflict. I don't think that we should be involved in this. Okay, the Israelis are perfectly capable and have demonstrated time and time again that they are perfectly capable militarily of taking care of business. We don't need to be involved in it. All right, we, we don't need to be involved in this. Technologically, they, they're far and away superior to any of their uh, peers in the Middle East. They let them take care of it. This is not our business. We, we have absolutely no uh, reason to get involved in this. We shouldn't be given the money. You know, now have, you know, all, all the sympathy in the world, best of luck, Godspeed. Uh, but we have no reason to get involved in this. The United States has no reason to get involved in this. We have our, our own problems with open borders. We have borders that, that are wide open, that we have militant insurgents 
coming in. Okay, we, we know this. This is indisputable. Right? It is indisputable at this point. We need to be focused on that. Giving money to everyone out there? Uh, no, I'm sorry. You know, it, it, that, that needs to stop. Now, again, you know, I'm telling you ideally what should happen, what will happen is, is something different. And, um, you know, I, I think that we're on a, a bad path to war regardless and uh, regardless of, of what anybody thinks or what anybody says. So, uh, shifting gears here, shifting gears, you know, we've, we've talked about the problem. We've, we've kind of beat that horse now. I want to dive into more of your questions out there. And I, I want to feel these. It's been a little bit of time since I've done this. The uh, questions of Radio Contra have been wildly popular. And uh, those some of the, the most uh, downloaded episodes, some of the, the uh, best feedback that I've got here um, was from these. And I think that it does a lot of good for a lot of people. Uh, so I've got a couple of questions here and, you know, I want to I want to field these. So um, this is coming from Silver Fox. Uh, and. Um, and of course, is uh, the email handle here name that, that was submitted, which we'll call him Silver Fox. So here we go. I've got a decent background in electronics. However, I lack a good base in antenna theory. My question is, if I wanted to build my own feed cable and connect it to a Baofeng radio for the purpose of connecting to an antenna, do I need balance on the feed to balance the input to the antenna, or will the antenna, correctly sized, load the feed cable to the proper impedance? Say, 50 feet of RG58. Is there a smaller gauge coax that would work? Best regards, Silver Fox. All right, so um, you got a background in electronics. Uh, that's awesome. Electronics background kind of gives you a perspective on radio, but that's, you know, it, practical application wins 100% of the time. Uh, so, first things first, you, you've, you've got a lot going on here, and, uh, you know, I cover a lot of this in the Baofeng book, The Gorilla's Guide to the Baofeng Radio, but uh, I don't really talk about balance in there or, or matching antennas, so to speak. Uh, just cutting the elements to the correct length and, and how to do that, which obviously you've read because of your question. So first, let's talk about uh, what balans are. So a balan is a um, uh, acronym for balance to unbalanced. It, it's a type of transformer. And uh, what it's doing is it's taking an unbalanced electrical load and it is converting it to a balanced one. So, you need balance for a uh, feed point resistance transformer more than, than anything else. And uh, that's because the, the resistance at the feed point of the antenna, where the coax cable actually connects to your, uh, the, the center of your dipole or, or you know, wherever it connects to your, your uh, coax cable connects to your antenna. That's the feed point. Um. So, you know, do you need to balance that load? Yes, you, you do need some type of electrical uh, transformer that happens because the, the load at that feed point 
or the resistance of that feed point can be a source of problems. Now, does that mean that you know you, you have to have a balance specifically? No. Uh, on HF, it's a good idea to have one on HF. So talking, you know, your, your Zygu 6100s, uh, the new PMR 171, which I, I've got a video review of it up uh, on AmericanPartisan.org as well as BrushBeater.org. Um, but, uh, you know, do, do you necessarily need one on VHF and UHF? The answer is maybe. And, and let me caveat that. So an HF antenna, you need one for a couple of reasons. First of all, you're going much lower in frequency. You need one for three reasons. In fact, you're going much lower in frequency, meaning the antenna is substantially larger. And that means because you're not perfectly matching an antenna to, or generally speaking, you're not going to perfectly match an antenna for a one-to-one SWR because there's a lot more factors that go into it. And when you uh, increase the size of an antenna, you're increasing uh, all the other electrical factors as well. Uh, feed point. The ohms at the feed point, the voltage on the ends. Uh, the, of course, you have your higher voltage on the ends of your antennas. And, and that's all because it's substantially larger, right? The other reason, another reason, is because we don't always get to pick and choose with HF antennas how high we can get them. Uh, people who live in HOAs, uh, they have a particularly difficult time if you're out in the desert where there's not a lot of trees or, or canopy vegetation. You just can't really necessarily uh, get those antennas up as high as you want them to, right, on HF. And so the higher you go with an antenna, the, the, um, it changes the resistance at the feed point which is measured in ohms, right? It's going to change all those, those factors. And so what a ballon is doing is it is taking up the slack for you and it makes the antenna easier to match. Here's the other thing on HF, we're using single sideband. Um, so when we use single sideband, uh, we're, we're using single sideband for digital communications. That's, that's done in upper sideband, um, voice, if it is 10 megahertz and below, will be in lower sideband. If it's 10 megahertz and above, it'll be in upper sideband. So like, you know, 20 meters, for example, 14 to 14.3 megahertz or 14.4 uh, megahertz rather. Um, you know, you're, you're talking in upper sideband, 40 meters, for example, uh, seven to 7.3 megahertz. You're going to be speaking in lower sideband, but the, you know, the, these modes are uh, exactly half of an AM carrier, right? And so AM amplitude modulation. We know that amplitude modulation gets a lot of electrical interference and is uh, susceptible to static and, and, you know, all sorts of things that degrade our listening capability as well as our transmitting capability. So what that balance is doing is it creates a, a choke, for RF energy. Uh, and, and if you open up a ballon, what you're going to see is a uh, metal toroid that looks like a, a, a donut, right? It, it looks like an iron donut. And it has wire wrapped, coiled around it, wrapped around it, much like an electrical magnet. Uh, it functions very, very similar, right? And creates a field around it 
that is your transformer. And so uh, what I carry on brushbeater.store is a four-to-one ballon. Most of your dipole antenna designs call for a four-to-one ballon. It's the most common one out there. And what that does is it transforms up to a 450-ohm load down to 50 ohms. And our radios like to have 50 ohms of resistance for the electrical match. So that does a lot of the work for you. So uh, one of my favorite antennas, the off-center fed dipole that I reference quite a bit out there. I think it's one of the, the better, if not the best, homebrew uh, HF antenna that you can build. What this does for us is, is uh, you know, we, we need a, a four to one ballon and we can transform uh, based on the diagrams that I, I throw out there. And I, I did want put one out there on Twitter last night. But um, it, it, what it does is it transforms your, uh, your, your antenna to function very well on 80 meters, 60 meters, 40 meters, 20, and 10. Uh, and if you go longer with it, sometimes it'll, it'll also do 6 meters, giving you a really good SWR, right? Meaning it's very efficient on all of those. And so you can run low power, 20 watts or less, you know, the Zygu G90 is, is, is a superstar in, in this uh, capability with, with one of those antennas. You're going to have a, a great time with that. And, uh, you know, this is what we build in class, the Zygu 6100 in the RTO course. I'm using the Zygu 6100. Works very well for that. Uh, the PMR 171 works really well in that role, as does the TBR 119, which is a military radio. But your question, getting back to the, the nuts and bolts here of it, um, you're asking about a, a Baofeng radio, right? So Baofeng radio, obviously VHF, UHF, much higher in frequency. The antennas are going to be a lot smaller. Do you need a ballon? It's an FM, so we don't necessarily need to worry about harmful interference coming from you know, electrical noise in our working environment. FM filters a lot of that out. Uh, do you need a ballon? A lot of ballons are not made for VHF and UHF frequencies uh, because that metal toroid in the center is it's it, it is built for certain frequency ranges that are in HF. Uh, it's not going to really do you any good when when you're going much higher in frequency. But that being said, do you necessarily need one? Most people get away with not running one, and they're perfectly fine, right? Won't see much of an issue. Um, if you do, however, run into electrical mismatch issues, and this does happen from time to time, uh, there was somebody on the forum, forum.brushbeater.org, that was having some trouble building a uh, homebrew antenna out of um, speaker wire and was having all sorts of SWR issues. And one way to resolve that is to coil some of your coax cable. So when you take your coax cable and you uh, give it a couple of, of uh, turns, you know, kind of uh, take like a, you know, a, a two liter bottle and wrap the co coax, you know, like I will say two turns around that and, and just tape the coax in place. What that's doing is creating an RF choke 
which is what we want. It is a um, it is a type of Valon. You're creating a transformer, but you're you're doing it without having to have a physical Valon there. Uh, so you're giving a couple of turns at the feed point with your coax cable. So yeah, uh, it's not incorrect to do that. You just don't want to make that choke too tight. Um, you know, a, a two liter bottle, which is about eight inches or so in diameter is perfect. All right. That, that's about the perfect size. And, uh, you're just, you're creating a very loose electrical choke right there at the feed point. That's going to perform very well for you. And I, I think that you're, you're going to be real happy with it. And when all else fails, man, get an antenna analyzer, uh, get an antenna analyzer, connect it to it. And, um, you know, see what it says, play around with it and, and experiment with it because, you know, that's why it's called antenna theory and not antenna law. And, and you know, I grin from ear to ear when I say that because that always, uh, you know, I'm not an electrical engineer and, uh, you know, I kind of come from the practical end background of this, of, of using the stuff. And so whenever I get electrical engineers in class, I grin from ear to ear Um you know, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting to me. They, they, like the look that they get on their face, like, Oh yeah, you know, you're, you're right. It, it's antenna theory, not antenna law. But, uh, you know, what I mean by that is though, when all else fails, man, experiment, uh, experiment, build an antenna without one, build an antenna with one, see which one performs better, you know, and, and, and go from there, brother. Uh, so what I will say last, certainly not least, uh, 50 feet of RG 58, you're going to want better coax than that. Uh, if, if you're running a 50 foot run from a bow thing, what's going to happen is you're going to get so much loss in that feed line. RG 58 is not the best coax cable in the world. Uh, I sell it with BNC adapters for uh, use in the field. But if I was to build a permanent station, uh, LMR, you, you're going to want LMR. So if this is a, a fixed position, you know, where you're not leaving, this, this is just your, your home, QTH, uh, your, your headquarters, your talk, whatever it is you want to call it, um, you, you really need better coax than that. So at times, microwave, LMR. Uh, LMR coax, and I don't remember what LMR stands for, but LMR 240 is what I run on my VHF station. It's performed very, very well over the years, and, and it's it's good stuff. Uh, it's survived hurricanes. It's survived ice storms. It's survived cold, hot, everything, uh, you know, because it, it gets pretty cold in North Carolina. It gets pretty damn hot, and uh, it, it has survived for the better part of a decade out there. And uh, still doing well. RG58 is something you really want to use in a, a temporary setting. You have a much higher loss on VHF with it. Um, the higher in frequency you go, the more loss is a problem. So, you know, you need to be paying attention to those loss coefficients. So, yeah, I, I would say uh, with your Balan, don't worry necessarily about a Balan. Get some better coax. Build that wire antenna, get it up on the air, and uh, put a couple of turns in your coax at the feed point. Check that with an antenna analyzer, see how well it performs, and then do it without and see how well that performs. And um, should be good to go, man. 
you know, and, and see, see what the difference is. And I think that you're going to be pleasantly surprised. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's, I love talking antenna stuff and I love discussing antenna stuff because that's, that's really that spark that, that people get. They're like, oh man, because you, you can, the reality is this, you can buy a radio. Okay. It, it's just like buying a firearm. And I said this this morning to somebody, it's just like buying a firearm. Um, buying a firearm is not going to make you a better shooter. Okay, we all get deep into the weeds on, you know, what radio you should buy. And, you know, then you get the super sad hams out there that are like, I only run Yeshu or ICOM. And like, look, man, I, I love those brands too. But it doesn't matter. All right, if your antenna is a pile of shit, it ain't going to matter. All right, it's just like if, if you buy a, a, you know, high-end, all-premium components for an AR-15 and you're building it, but you buy the cheapest, crappiest barrel on the market. You know, the blue light special from whoever, uh, you know, whatever, you know, poverty pony, right? So, uh, you know, still got metal shavings on it and everything. Uh, so it, it doesn't matter if you don't, you, you can, you can throw all the money you want at something and if that rifle doesn't have a quality barrel on it, there is no, or it's not put together correctly, it's not going to matter. There's nothing that you can do to make that thing shoot straight. It's, it's just not happening. Okay. And, and you, it's, it's going to be detrimental effects. The same is with your antennas. People get down in the weeds on, you know, buying this radio, that radio, all the radios, whatever. Okay. But if your antenna sucks, if your antenna sucks, then it doesn't matter, all right? And, and this is particularly true on HF because people don't really understand antenna theory by and large. And when it gets on HF, it shows. Uh, it shows. With VHF, you can get away with some things. Uh, you, you can you can get away with, with not having decent antennas and, you know, especially on bow things and the performance just is going to end up being what it is. Okay. But on HF, if you don't configure an antenna correctly and you don't pay attention to the antenna uh, designs and, and what they do and why and, and really the best one for ap the said application, you're not going to have a good day. And, and it takes the, the uh, steep learning curve and really makes it that much higher. Uh, so... You know, pay very careful attention. And, and when in doubt, man, uh, the U.S. Special Forces Antenna Handbook, um, you know, I put that back into print. It had been in print or out of print for a very long time. Very plainly written. Great, uh, great handbook. Great professional reference. One of the better ones that I have used. Keeps the tech end stuff to a minimum. Easy to follow, easy to read, and, and the diagrams are, are really well illustrated. So, uh, you know, there you go. Uh, get, you know, pick up a copy of that and uh, do some studying up. And, and again, when in doubt, come to class. Uh, come to class. we got course dates up on the calendar. Um, you know, th there's a reason that, that, you know, I have a lot of people in the defense community who are coming out, who are making their way to class. I've got a lot of folks in the special operations community that, that are coming out to classes. There's a reason for that. 
Okay, it, it's it's you you need this professional instruction, um, and and uh, you know not bragging, but the way that I've structured the POI in this course, it is designed to take you from zero and get you functional, and we do that in real time. We do that in real time. So the you know by the end of day four of the RTO course series. You know, you're you're perfectly competent at building antennas, at directional transmissions, at digital transmissions. You know, we, we go into all that stuff and you do it. You know, we're not just talking about it, but you're doing it. Anyway, um, you, you can find all that information up on brushbeater.store. That's the the um, um, that is the the place to register for classes, you know, and, and I would love to see you in a course. But uh, anyhow, shift the gears a little bit. Another uh, long topic here inbound and one that I, uh, another topic I really enjoy talking about and it's optics. It's optics. Uh, so moving on down the line in the email shoot here, uh, another really good one that I had yesterday and it led to a great conversation because uh, man, I can, I can talk optics all day long and uh, you know, of course, brushbeater.store is an optics dealer now for two brands of, of, uh, optics of, of pretty well-known optics manufacturers out there, Lucid and of course, Swamp Fox. We're going to be adding more to the arsenal in, in the future, but, uh, right now these two, I think are, are really representing some of the best bang for the buck on the market. But, uh, anyhow. Here's the question. Hey guys, just listened to the latest podcast. Good stuff. I just got a B&T SPR 300 and am looking for an optic. Certainly not going to spend anything close to what the gun cost, but for a rifle that boasts sub MOA at 150 yards and with a 300 blackout cartridge not really going functionally past 300 yards, I'm thinking of one of the Swamp Vox LPVO units that might work. Any ideas? I want to support y'all rather than supporting Amazon slash Bezos. Um, first of all, brother, thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting small business, and in particular me, uh, and, and brushbeater.store. That's, um, that's a big honor. It really is because there's there's a lot of optics companies out there that you could do business with that are established dealers. And, and this has been all they've been doing for a long time. And I'm just breaking into that market. Uh, you know, I'm just getting into it and really originally didn't even plan on doing that. It was just kind of it happened, um, you know, and, and primary arms. I've had a relationship with them for, for a long time. Um but they've they they're they're kind of not where they they want to be competing with themselves, and so uh, dealing their stuff is kind of on pause at the moment. And and I love Primary Arms, uh, absolutely love them as a company, and and you know have have worked with them, and we did a podcast and everything. But um, you know, and and that's fine. It, and I have a link down below for Primary Arms, you know, for uh, that that's my affiliate link with them. But, um, you know, I, I went out to Wyoming, got up with Jamie Wilson, who's the, the owner of Lucid in uh, Riverton, Wyoming, and got the opportunity to hang out with him. 
and uh, broke bread with him, and, and it was totally unexpected, man. It, it was it was uh, really a cool thing. And so going into his shop and getting a, uh, a feel not just for him as a, as a person, he's a super cool guy. I was just talking to him on the phone uh, two nights ago. But their business philosophy and who they cater and tailor their products for was very, very important to me. Um, that, that was very important to me. And it was the same with Swamp Fox. Uh, Swamp Fox Optics, they are building combat optics at a price point that is meant to arm you, uh, the American Patriot. And, um, you know, they're, they're taking features that I think are usually found in optics that are in a substantially higher price point, uh, stuff that you would find in night force, uh, features that you would find in like the loophole Mark five, Mark eight, uh, for example, those, those features and they're putting it into optics at, at a, uh, really a, a killer, killer price point. Um, so, you know, the, the Warhawk and the Warhammer, uh, Warhorse rather lines of optics, which I have in stock here. Uh, I unboxed one of the LPVOs and, uh, the two to 10 by 44, which is really the optic that I'm most impressed with. That sucker is, man, I, I have, like I said yesterday, I have a brand new PSA, uh, Saber 137 Saber that I am mounting that to. And, you know, 13.7 rifle is a little short for an optic with that much glass, but um, I am so excited to get that thing uh, mounted. And uh, with Lucid 2, with the L7, wonderful, wonderful, uh, very well-made, very high-quality optic, uh, especially considering its price point. You know, we've come a long way in the mid-tier optics lines we, we've come a very very long way in a decade well really a little more than a decade but but about a decade's time and um you know the, there's there's been some companies out there that have have really moved the ball forward in terms of bang for the buck so it's a it, it's a good time for optics uh but talking about your question here so you got a, a b and t uh, SPR 300, uh, man, the Rolex of rifles, literally that thing is the Rolex of rifles. It is, uh, anything by BNT is, uh, awesome. Just like, man, wow. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I shot one, I shot the, uh, the APC five, five, six. And, um, it's out of my budget, but, uh, man, what, what a nice rifle. I mean, I already have a CZ brand, uh, which, you know, I, I don't really shoot very much, but it, it's a good weapon. And so I, you know, I didn't really have any need to, uh, buy one of those, but still, man, if, if I was into that, goodness gracious, uh, what, what a nice weapon. One of the best combat triggers one of the best combat triggers that, that I think I've ever shot. And, um, you know, it, 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 anyway, with 300 blackout, you, you're definitely not wrong. Uh, 300 blackout in, in its uh, supersonic uh, variant, 
you know, you're definitely not wrong. Functionally, it's not going past much past 300 meters. Um, but you keep saying yards, which is pointing me in the direction of, of uh, MOAs. I'm going to explain this in a second. Um, but that's that's your focus, right? And so when you're going subsonic, you know, you, you can cut that distance down to about 100 meters or so when, when you're going subsonic with 300 uh, for most loadings that I'm aware of. Anyway, uh, so you're looking for optics. You definitely, you already want the LPVO uh, because you mentioned in that. And, and that's that's a really um, smart, very wise decision. Um, Swamp Fox's LPVOs. So the ones that I carry, I've got the Arrowhead, which is the 1 to 10 by 24. It is a second focal plane. Meaning the reticle is the same size regardless of magnification level. And the uh, subtensions of the, the reticle itself, which is in mils on that, are only true at 10 power, at the maximum power. So um, 1 to 10 is, is really neat. I think that it's, it's a really uh, cool optic especially for its price point, um, you know, sub $500 and you're getting a one to 10, which is really, really cool. But, um, you are giving up some things. Uh, a one to 10 by 24 is going to be pretty dim in lower light conditions. Uh, you know, the mesotropic times, you know, just after sunrise, just before sunset, um, at 10 power, it's getting pretty dim and the eye box is going to be a little small, right on the gun. So you're definitely going to want to piggyback, uh, a red dot on that. It, it, that's just, I think it's kind of silly for a one to six to do that personally. That's my, my personal opinion, but on a one to 10, yeah, you, you're probably going to want to be running a red dot in conjunction with it for those close up targets. Uh, just because that eye box is, is going to be a little unforgiving. Um, you know, and, and if that doesn't apply to you, then that's fine. Uh, you know, it, it but I, I think that it does in, in this case. Um, the Tomahawk, the one to six, really good optic as well, but it has a bullet drop compensator in it. Uh, the, what they call the gorilla dot BDC, which is for five, five, six. So that's not going to work for 300 blackout or 7.62 by 39. And it's definitely not going to work for uh, the subsonic loadings of either of those calibers. It's, it's going to be way off, right? The bullet drop is, is just not going to be there. So you're going to have to figure out what those holdovers are. And that can be kind of a, a pain to do. So this points us to... The 34 millimeter options that we have in the lineup, the Warhorse, which is Swamp Fox's one to six by 24, and the uh, uh, Warhammer, which is the two to 10 by 44. But you're not looking for the two by 10 to 44, you're looking for the LPVO. So Swamp Fox with the 34 millimeter tube is. I would say stepping up to being in league with the big boys now in more ways than one. Um, definitely looking to go head-to-head with, uh, let's say, Primary Arms' platinum line 
you're kind of getting into uh, loophole LPVO territory at that point. Night Force for sure. And the only thing that Night Force has that's comparable to, to that is the attacker, which is almost $3,000 of an optic. And even though it's extremely nice, all right, it's extremely nice and it, it is durable. Um, really durable. And I've had a few come through class and, and I must say I'm impressed with them, but that's also $3,000 and you're not looking at spending that much. One other drawback that I would say, and this applies to uh, the Swamp Fox as well, is when you're talking a 34 millimeter uh, tube and an optic that big, it's, you're adding a lot of weight to a weapon that, you know, if, if I remember right, the B and T is a little bit heavier than, than an AR. It's, it's kind of in the eight pound range. You're putting a lot of weight on that weapon. Um, so the, and that's the primary complaint that I have from folks with, with, uh, you know, running the, the 34 and 35 millimeter tubes is it, that's, that's a, you're adding a lot of weight to the weapon. Now, if you're, if you're fine with that, then that's cool. It offers us a, a couple of uh, things here. So the uh, Swamp Fox LPVO, the Warhorse LPVO, which is an absolute tank. And I love this thing. All right. I absolutely love this optic. And I'm thinking about picking up another rifle just to mount it to. Uh, one of them that I have in stock is, as a T&E deal and just running it. Because uh, it's it, it's really, really nice. Um. But the reticle and, and the, the um, subtensions of the reticle are in mills. And this is really the, the crux of, of all of it here and making that decision for yourself. Um, you keep referencing yards in your uh, email here and understand that mills is a metric unit of measurement. So if, if, you know, you're, you're running all metric and I do things in metric when I'm shooting because that's how I was trained and, you know, coming from the military side of the house, that's how we shoot. Okay. And, and we're thinking in, in terms of, of, uh, the metric system. And so for me, mills and, and because of my professional training and experience, I'm used to ranging things in terms of size in mills. So a mill reticle makes more sense for me and, and uh, the subtensions and, and the units of adjustment on that optic being in one-tenth of a mill makes more sense to me as well. Now for you, it may not because you're in yards. And so when we're talking uh, SAE measurements, right, that's where MOAs comes in. And, you know, you want an MOA reticle. And so uh, the Swamp Fox LPVO it being in mills, uh, the one that I carry is in mills. I'm not saying it's ruling it out because you can do the conversion formula. It, that's, that's not particularly difficult. And once you know where your holdovers are, I mean, LPVOs, and I would say even this, this 1 to 10, or a 2 to 10 by 44, rather, the, the uh, Warhawk, I'm not a dial in your shots kind of guy within 400 meters, especially with an AR or, or even 300 blackout. You're not doing that. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're zeroing your rifle and you're knowing where your holdovers are and you're going from there. 
that's that's how it works in the real world for the most part. Until you're graduating up to those really long distance shots where you know you have to adjust those knobs because you you don't have enough holdover in there for the bullet drop on that. So like if you're running uh, 7.62 by 51 to 1,000 meters or beyond, you have to dial in those shots. Um, you know, 6.5 Creedmoor, you know, going, you know, past 1,500 meters, uh, 300 wind mag, so on and so forth. Like it, it's, it, there's a reason to, to dial in your shots. Um, but, you, you know, in, in kind of the PRS competition world, you absolutely do. But I'm not really doing that that much. Um, you know, on an AR-15 or, or a, a combat carbine that is set up with, that might be in a designated marksman's role, you know, you're, you're inside that engagement gap of that weapon, which I consider on, on a 5.56 to be 500 meters. Um, you know, you're, you're inside of that engagement gap. You're not dialing in those shots. You don't really have a lot of time to do that uh, for almost every scenario that I can think of. And that's why guys like, you know, Rob Furlong, for example, in, in Afghanistan, that's why it, it's those stories are so unique because he actually did have to, you know, dial in shots that he was making. And it took him a while. Like it, it took him a lot of rounds to do that. I, I don't remember the exact number, but uh, you're just not doing that with like 300 blackout or with five five six. You were just not doing that, unless you're you're you know you're in the competition world. But in combat, it's holdovers all day long. All right, so that brings us to the one low power variable optic or LPVO that I haven't talked about, and this is the Lucid. Okay, this is Lucid's L seven. 1 to 6 by 24. It's in MOAs. Okay, so I have a use case behind every product that I carry in brushbeater.store and I have my my theory behind, you know, everything that that, you know, I'm using. These optics manufacturers put out a lot of different optics and they're all high quality, but they kind of have a use philosophy behind each one of them. And I'm carrying products that are kind of tailored, at least in my mind, the, the product lines that I'm carrying to what I teach my clientele, you out there to be able to do uh, when we have hands on in class. And one of those those goals is a designated marksman's role with the AR-15. Right. And so if you're coming from a military background, Mills makes a lot of sense. Doing things in Mills makes a lot of sense. If, you know, you just like Mills because it is a very fine unit of adjustment and it's one that's very easy to use once you get used to it. Everything breaks down into tens and it, you know, you're, you're good to go. I don't have to think a lot about what I'm doing. But, but with that said, I get a lot of shooters too who just do everything in yards. And that's how they came up shooting. That's the system that everybody's familiar with. And it makes a lot of sense. And so, um, you know, you want to stick to MOAs. Hanging out with Jamie Wilson out in Wyoming. Um, spending spending some time with him. Had a heck of a lot of fun. And, and just an all-around great guy. He initially tailored a lot of his products to get big game hunters and dangerous game hunters. 
And in his working environment out in Wyoming, you have a lot of people who hunt doll sheep and elk out there. And so you're taking long distance shots more often than not. Um, so with that said, you have a lot of big game hunters that are not taking the time to learn a mill system. They don't care about that. Um, this is not something that, that they're necessarily trying to do. They're just trying to make that kill shot with seven millimeter on eight or, you know, whatever, whatever, uh, big game round that they're running out there, um, to make those longer distance shots. Right. So all of his optics are in MOAs and, and I'm going to have Jamie on, uh, next week. I'm not sure exactly what day right now we're going to, we're going to work on the schedule, but we, we're going to get him on. I was just talking to him on the phone, uh, night before last, but we, uh, we had a good conversation about that once more. We revisited that of why all of his reticles, whether that's the, uh, the P eight, which is a four by 40 prismatic optic, why it's reticle is in MOAs, why the L seven is in MOAs, why the M seven, which is a, a red dot, a really well-designed red dot, by the way, uh, mini red dot is in MOAs. It, you know, the, it's, it's, it's really tailored not to a uh, military background market, but rather your market and what makes sense for the end shooter. And uh, I think it's one that works really well and uh, can work really well for guys who are getting into uh, the designated marksman's role, maybe extending that range on your AR-15, seeing what you can do with it at 400 and 500 meters, um, and, and doing everything in yards and, and the, the standard, uh, American English measurements. Right. And so for that reason, uh, that lucid one to six, the L seven is, is really, really a cool optic and, uh, extremely high quality, way more bang for the buck. Uh, than I think that you're getting from some of its competitors out there. Um, and, and you know, they QC every one of these before they go out. Uh, so they, they check all of them hand by, uh, you know, one at a time. And you're, you're getting a very, very good optic that is backed by a lifetime warranty uh, coming from Lucid. And, you know, Swamp Fox, obviously you are as well, uh, complete lifetime warranty on both of those. Uh, that's coming from the manufacturer. But that Lucid being in MOAs, really, really good stuff, man. Really good stuff. And so, um, anyway, it, I would take a hard look at that one. And, of course, based on the conversation that we had yesterday, you already did. And, uh, you know, so there you go. You know, and, and so what I will say, grinning from ear to ear, brother, happy shooting. And I look forward to hearing your feedback on what you can do uh, with that 300 blackout, both in supersonic and subsonic loadings with that MOA reticle. Because with an MOA reticle, now you're able to tailor every load to how much drop you're going to have at distance. So if you're using a, a ballistic calculator like Strelock, which, um, you know, everybody that brings a thumb drive to class, I'm giving you Strelock for Android. Uh, I've got a freeware version of it that is still very capable. 
and uh, works really well. I've been using it for well over a decade now. And uh, you're able to get uh, superimpose what that drop is in MOAs based on the data from your load. And so you can you can custom uh, create those dope tables. Uh, dope is, is data on previous engagement. So anyway, like I said, man, I could talk all day about that. And, uh, you know, obviously, as y'all can tell, I get going on a couple of topics, man. Camo, marksmanship. You know, anything that's making you more dangerous, I love it. And I'm granted from ear to ear. And it's my honor these days to be able to bring you products to the market and provide a place where people can buy these things, uh, where you have it. You got a one-stop shop. And, uh, you know, I can't wait till the night vision and the thermal comes in stock, man, because we're going to really be burning it down then. Uh, Really be burning it down. So anyway, anyway, I'm running a little bit long here on this podcast. We've got a couple more kick-ass podcasts that are going to be coming at you today. Today, including Sons of Liberty, we'll be back on the air live from the Green Dragon Tavern on the air tonight at 2100, streaming live exclusively on the Podbean app. So, uh, and, and of course, it will be uploaded tomorrow to all of your favorite podcasting outlets. But we are live on Podbean. Uh, with that said, folks, God bless. Keep your head on a swivel because I have a bad feeling that we are about to see uh, an uptick, at least, of the sudden jihad syndrome. But uh, with that said, it is your duty to protect you and yours. God bless you. And I will talk to you again very, very soon. This is NC Scout, out.